you know, everybody throws the caregiver in after the patient and says, and the caregiver. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a need for the caregiver to be an equal part of the healthcare relationship. Yes, the patient obviously is the person who is experiencing this first and foremost and is terrified to have a disease. But the caregiver does play a really big role. And I think there is a need for more acknowledgement of that. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. Moravik is one of over 43 million people in the United States whose job description, she says, could read something like this, requires no prior training, must be flexible with hours, available in emergencies, willing to do almost anything, and only compensated by love. If that sounds familiar, it's probably because, like many of you, Anne is a caregiver. She's also the founder, president, and catalyst for good of Rx for Good, a company that advises healthcare organizations about what patients think, want, and need, so those organizations can deliver on their promise to put patients first. Or, as Anne puts it, quote, if we listen intently, truly hear what patients and caregivers are saying to us, and act on their insights, we can learn to ease the burden of disease. Anne recently published a piece for Forbes Digital Magazine titled, What's Love Got to Do With It? When Caring for a Business and Caregiving Converge. Anne Moravik joins us today from Stamford, Connecticut, and I could not be happier to have her on the show. And welcome to the AgeWise Podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Jenna. I am so delighted to be a participant today and really look forward to our conversation. So before we get into the work of Rx for Good, could you set this up for listeners by sharing a little bit about your background and your caregiving experience in particular? And I want to say I'm really sorry to read that your father had died fairly recently, right? Yes, actually yeah. a year ago, September 11th. Oh and, my gosh, that's not that long. Um, yeah, I, I was blessed by having the opportunity to have both of my parents around for a very long time in my life. My father was going on 95. My mother at the time a year ago was 93. So it was wonderful to really be able to be with them. I don't think many people have that experience in life. Mm -hmm. But with that aging came a sort of a sudden um, demise of both of their health last summer. And my mother fell and had a fractured neck. Um, she had a tendency to fall quite frequently for whatever reason mm -hmm. throughout her, her life. And so she wound up, we wound up together in the emergency room. And at the same time, my father had congestive heart failure that was getting worse and worse and finally at the point where we had to do something about it. So those two, um, their lives, both their health, took a turn for the worse at the same time last summer. And I happened to be, it was all sort of happenstance that I was planning to be on the Cape, Cape Cod, where they both live. Mm -hmm. And so I wound up being thrust into this role of taking them to the emergency room multiple times, dealing with all kinds of treatment issues and taking them to doctor's appointments and 
it was just a very, very trying summer for them because they just felt so vulnerable and were worried about what was ultimately going to happen to them. And I was, I just got into this mode of, okay, I'm here, I'm going to do this. And adrenaline kind of set in and I just gave them whatever I could in terms of expertise and support and love and shopping for them. And it ultimately, you know, turned out my mother was in the hospital three times last summer. My father went in, I think they both actually were in at sort of the same time for different reasons. And he went in for this cardiac procedure, which he probably should never have had. Hmm. It was a an experimental procedure. And, and anyway, he wound up being in surgery for five hours, and he was never the same again when he came out. So he was oh, in a rehab unit for a very short period of time. And then I got a call one evening saying, your father's status has changed. Can you come to the emergency room? And so he passed away on September 11th. And at least I was able to be there um, as he passed. Mm -hmm. So it was a, and and then I guess the, the epilogue to it was my mother was in a rehab unit after another hospitalization and wound up going into an assisted living location because they didn't want her to be at home alone because mm-hmm. of her falls mm-hmm. um, after my father passed away. Mm-hmm. So she's now, the good news is she's stable, she's enjoying her life, has new friends, you know, has recovered from his his death and is really in a good place. So mm-hmm. that has kind of created less stress on her and, and on all of us in the family. Well, do you have yeah. any siblings? And if so, did they help out? Yes. Yeah. Yes, they did. We're, I am one of six children, so oh, okay. five of us are still alive. And I have a flexible work right. environment in that I own my own business and work out of my home. So it was much easier for me to be there for them than my other brothers and sisters. And we're all sort of three or four hours away from where my parents reside. Mm -hmm. So it just turned out. But whenever I had to go away or was busy or someone in the family, particularly my sister Joan, who was wonderful, she lives in North Carolina, and she would come up and had, you know, had some of the most challenging circumstances to deal with because my mother acquired C. diff once she was in the hospital Mm -hmm. and didn't realize it. And so Joni was a, a wonderful nurse for my mother and, and really took care of her in a lot of crisis situations. Mm-hmm. So yes, the family was all, all involved and everybody contributed in, in their own way too. My brother was very helpful from a financial standpoint, helping to organize that uh-huh. part of it. That's good. Well, it sounds like you were just called into duty quite un, unawares and I'm wondering how that disrupted your life. well well it was it it was somewhat destructive but it was also I did try to take advantage of the environment it was a summer on Cape Cod so Uh it was a beautiful place to have to be so (laughs) I couldn't complain about that Mm -hmm. Um, and so whenever I had an opportunity I tried to you know take advantage by jogging or seeing friends or going out to dinner whatever and then my job was I think it was I definitely, things slipped last summer, uh, and I, it just was impossible for it not to. I'm very conscientious about my business, sure. and there were times when I just, you know, couldn't do the PowerPoint presentation that was due the next day because my father was in surgery or something. So, you know, I have a great team of people 
who work with me with Rx for Good. So mm-hmm. they were absolutely wonderful and understanding, and I will do the same for them if they're ever in a similar circumstance. And I'll bet they're glad to know that. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. A lot and of people don't have know, that security or that feeling, you know, with their no, employers. No, that's very, very true. And it, mm. it is challenging when work demands are there, but there is such a need now, and I'm very heartened by what's going on in the caregiver policy arena with some new uh, mandates to make lives better for caregiver and make sure Mm -hmm. that there's more support for them along the way. So Mm -hmm. that's encouraging. Yeah. Well, seeing is believing. So I'm going to try and be optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. It it is the government who's doing it, right? (laughs) Right. Exactly. So it sounds like your parents were pretty healthy before this happened. Uh, Yes. Were they? They they were. Well, they lived independently. And they would. Into their 90s. I know. That's incredible. It was. Absolutely. They would go to the. They were getting to the point where it was very difficult. And Mm -hmm. so it it Mm -hmm. did happen sort of in stages where they realized, you know, they couldn't go to the grocery store. They were having issues just walking around Mm -hmm. and bringing the bags in from grocery shopping. But Mm. by and large, both of them had excellent minds and were mobile. And they, you know, my mom cooked every single meal for for both of them. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. I know, it was just amazing. And Mm. I'm very, very fortunate that they didn't you know, my father didn't have to suffer long, and now my mother's life is much more stable, too. As is yours as a caregiver. <laughs> yes, yes, that is, that, is, that is true. So you so you wrote in your Forbes piece that becoming a caregiver was as daunting, if not more, than starting your business, Rx for Good, which is really quite a statement, because it's no small thing to start a business. But it's not surprising from this caregiver's perspective. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me what it was about becoming a caregiver that was daunting, and if possible, describe one of those moments of sheer terror, which you referred to oh, in the Forbes sure. piece. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's um, an easy one. Well, <laughs> so I think with starting a business, you go into it knowing that you want to do this, mm. and you're, you know, you're reaching out on your own, and you're moving on faith that it's all going to work. And in caregiving, at least in my circumstance, it was entirely an emergency crisis situation. In fact, the research that we did this summer showed that a a vast majority of caregivers get into the role through a crisis situation or a new diagnosis. So Mm -hmm. they're totally unprepared. Mm -hmm. And even though I have a healthcare background, I was just, you know, I consult in healthcare. I don't experience it day to day on a personal level. And so all of my learnings came flooding into my experience in a very personal way. So just as one example, um, when my mother wound up in the emergency room and I was sitting there with her, she had fallen and the emergency room physician comes in and, and he says, oh, you know, we're, everything's okay. We're just checking in with the neurosurgeon up in Boston to see what he thinks. And my mother and I looked at each other at that point and went, neurosurgeon? Yeah. And she had, she had fractured her neck. And so mm-hmm. we're like, oh, my God, she's going to have to have some kind of spinal surgery and what's going to happen then? And, and we were just terrified. So that moment, I think for her and for me, we, you know, we go back to to this day and go, oh, my God, we were so lucky. And my mother feels like, you know, the cat with nine lives because mm-hmm. she has fallen so frequently, but has wound up always bouncing back, which mm-hmm. is a credit to her probably tough farm upbringing or uh-huh. something. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
For sure. My my mom's fallen a few times too. She's 89. And I'm just shocked at her ability to bounce back. She's like the bionic woman. She's had, she had a three screws put into her left hip. She's had a, wow. total, a total reverse shoulder surgery. But she just like keeps on trucking. And yeah. it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty amazing testament to this, you know, the ability of, of human beings to, to survive and to be resilient. Not everyone's that yeah. way. But you know, I've lived through it with her as I know that you've lived through it with your own mom. Uh-huh. Uh, so observing it, it's really something it's inspiring, I think. Yeah, it really is. Because you, you know, you have people who think, oh, well, when someone gets to a certain age, that it's all downhill if they fall, you know, they'll never fully recover. But I have seen it again and again, too. My mother had a hip replacement about a decade or so, a little more than a decade ago. And it's true. There's, I guess it shows you that, that resilience, this power to keep going, a lot of it is attitude and, and strength and power over a situation that can be just really horrible. Yeah, so. a refusal to give in and the yeah, the will to absolutely. live is, is really strong. Yeah, um, it has to be. So were you surprised? Did you feel unprepared? And what skills did you draw on? Oh, God. <laughs> yes. I, on one hand, I think I had a benefit because I have been touching the healthcare world right. for a very long time. Right. So I know enough about medicine to be dangerous. So I could ask at least the right questions of physicians. So I started, you know, making sure that whenever they had an appointment, I went with them to ask. And so that was not so hard, but it was, I guess, a frustration in how the healthcare system really doesn't necessarily always connect the dots. And yeah figure things out for patients and how it's bureaucratic and all the rest. So that was a learning that I wasn't surprised about. I think the learning for me was the, and this was a really positive one, just how close I grew to my parents. You know, I always loved them. They are great people. But, you know, you don't really get to know somebody in the intimate way you do until you're caregiving for them. Mm -hmm. And you're you know, wiping their bottom or you're, yeah. you know, you're, you're talking about subjects that are just really tough for them to talk about. And, and so that experience and the gratitude that goes back and forth and the expressions of love, you know, I just wanted to make sure that I knew their time was ticking and wanted them both to know, you know, how much I loved them. And I, and they, I got so much back from that too. Mm-hmm. So even though it's a stressful and, and I think probably my circumstance, you know, for people who are in caregiving long, long, long term, yeah. it is a much different circumstance. And I think probably so debilitating at times emotionally and physically. And so I really just admire people who are caring for someone with Alzheimer's for years on end, because that mm-hmm. must be so difficult. Mine was a very shorter term mm-hmm. um, crisis situation. Yeah. So your business emphasizes the perspective of the patient, and you touched on this a little bit in your response just now, but I'm wondering during the throes of caring for two health-challenged parents, what was their patient experience like, and what was missing, if anything? Uh, Well, so I think both of them were feeling so vulnerable, Mm -hmm. and they didn't know what was next. And the most important thing for them was to be able to stay in their homes Mm-hmm. And I think as they saw their health spiraling out of control, they were so worried about what was next, you know. And so I think their fears were going into a hospital and never coming home again yeah. and being put 
long term into a nursing home. And frankly, neither of them, and I talked to my mother about this now, neither of them knew of assisted living, you know, as that kind of in-between category. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we didn't either. We were just mm-hmm. kind of thought, oh, well, where you go, you go to a nursing home. And mm-hmm. so that was an eye-opener for her. And she often says that, gee, if my dad had, you know, he would have really liked this because I mm. think they were growing older. They were alone together a lot and, and without mm-hmm. socialization. Mm-hmm. I think that can affect your mind, it can affect your happiness um, and create depression. So I think, you know, that was a learning. In terms of my father's, I think he thought that this operation he was going to go through was going to make him young again. In some way, you know, he naively thought it was going to fix everything. And he was going to walk out and be and, and so that was just so hard to see the aftermath of that. And so I'm glad that he didn't suffer for long. Did you guys talk about death and dying at all? Um, I never do with you know, my parents. Not yeah, really. it was not a, we would have some, we, I remember we touched around it, you know, one mm-hmm. day my sister and I and my parents were together and we were talking about songs we'd like at our funerals or something. <laughs> <laughs> we <laughs> joked that my father wanted something from, you know, the one, some wild Western opening show song Uh (laughs) anyway so but he was not he just didn't want to talk about it he kept saying I'm going to live to be a hundred that was his goal my mother much less afraid of dying and is now the only one left of her many brothers and sisters in her family and we talk about it I'm uncomfortable because she'll say well I don't know how long I'm going to be around and I, I was like oh I'll always try to put a oh, you're going to be around, of course you're going to be around. But it is something that, you know, we're, I think, in a non-verbal way, bracing for and have to prepare for. Mm -hmm. You're smart enough, I think, to have prepared in terms of, like, getting a will and that sort of thing in place, right? Oh, yes, Right, okay. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and there's all that. She has advanced directives. All that stuff. She probably has to for the ALF. Yeah, Yeah. we did all of that when we confirmed all of that recently, and my brother's handling all the, all of those financial so yes we mm-hmm, do mm-hmm. all of the kind of you know what go, what's going to happen to the house we actually just sold oh wow so, that's a big step yeah, yeah. that was a uh, i think that was a really weird thing for her but she never went back she never went back to the house after my father died and yeah. didn't want to she would have had to go back alone and that would have been just awful for her i mean yeah. when, when my father died i actually moved in with my mother and oh. and we lived together for three years so we wound up uh-huh. living together for three oh, years it which has been wonderful for her well it was wonderful for, for you. her but <laughs> not, so <much> for you. <laughs> not so much for me the first year was kind of a win-win because i was at a low point in my career and i needed a roof over my head quite honestly and uh-huh. um we needed each other so it was a win-win but she was so depressed and um, it was really a, a difficult period, but um, she was able to stay in the house because I was able to move in. There's no way she yeah. could have managed that four bedroom house in suburbia on her uh-huh. own. That and was I, it sounds of like you to do well, you know, um, you do what you have to do. But I got uh-huh. to know my mother in a way that I'm sure you got to know your parents well. Yeah. Uh, how often do you see your mom now? Oh, I make an effort to be there at least once a month. In fact, I was uh-huh. away this past. Uh, yeah, I went on vacation for a little bit mm-hmm. this summer, and my brother and sister were there closing out on the house. And so I didn't see my mother for, I think, over a month. And I was just 
going through total withdrawal. From, yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> from her. So, so yeah, make a point to be up with her because, you know, we'll go shopping, make sure she gets out. My sister also goes up. Everybody in the family is That's pretty much nice. up there. That's good. Probably every other week someone's there almost. So uh-huh. oh, that's she great. has a, a good amount of visitors and then has all kinds of new friends, wow. which is exciting. Yeah, although they do die a lot in yeah, assisted living. Yeah, that's a reality. So she, mm-hmm. she's like, oh, yeah, there's another person's face on the poster in the right. mail room, you know. So <laughs> right. she, but she's developed a, a great sense of humor. She, you know, there's a part of my mother that was buried in her marriage, I think. Yeah, I was going to ask how, how you've seen her change. Oh, my God. She's... My father was an overbearing person, Mm. and I think my mother grew up in a very old world. She was born in 1925, so women were not highly liberated at Mm -hmm. that point in time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even though she worked with an independent woman, Mm -hmm. she played the role of the good wife. And I think she wasn't necessarily happy in that role and felt unfulfilled in some way and not really everybody wants to feel wanted and needed and loved and I don't think she got all that especially mm-hmm. at the end when both of them were not feeling very well mm-hmm. and now she's you know she has people who really care for her and friends and I have dinner with them when up there and you know they they all don't necessarily talk to each other very much because right. half of them can't hear. Right. But they, um, <laughs> but they're just, you know, she takes care of them. They take care of her. They talk about all kinds of things, and it's just, it's wonderful to see. Uh huh. Well, I want to. I'd love to talk more about your mom, but I also want to talk about your business. So let's transition to that and talk about RX for Good, which you founded around the time that healthcare was really shifting in America. Um, yeah, you founded in two thousand nine, right? So tell us uh-huh. what inspired you to start the business. Because this was obviously well before you began the heavy lifting of the caregiving that you ended yes, up it was. doing, right? Yes, it was. Yeah, well, part of it had been I had a very long career in the um, public relations industry in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I managed the global healthcare practice of a couple of different integrated PR agencies that were part of these advertising holding companies. And it was a really mm-hmm. kind of a burnout career because yeah. if you wanted to go up in level in the agency world, you had to be doing new business development a lot. Mm-hmm. And that meant you were constantly pitching new business and developing these presentations and going on pitches and working till all hours of the night. And I just eventually burnt out from that. But in the course of my public relations career, I always had an affinity for the patient advocacy organizations that we wound up working with on behalf of our clients and had a commitment to social issues and wanting to change things in some way. And I felt that the relationships that existed between patient advocacy organizations in healthcare, and, and that's a term that's a kind of to the category I work in. What I mean are these groups such as the Parkinson's Foundation, uh-huh. Michael J. Fox Foundation, uh-huh. the American Heart Association. There are all kinds of organizations that are there to support patients. Mm-hmm. And those organizations are funded often through individual contributions, foundations, and companies. And it appeared to me that oftentimes those relationships were more transactional mm-hmm. in nature, Mm -hmm. and that there was a need and an opportunity to find ways of having collaborations that could actually create more change. And so I started Rx for Good with that 
overall mission would be to kind of elevate the outcomes for patients and caregivers of the relationships that existed between corporations and nonprofits mm-hmm. that were serving patients. Mm-hmm. So it was an interesting time. It's a very, the business area is somewhat of a niche category. Uh-huh. And so, you know, we've always been kind of evolving as healthcare has evolved. And you're right, the changes in healthcare with consumers being much more active in healthcare decisions, wanting to know more and not just be listening to physicians and doing what they tell them to do, right. has created an environment where patients are empowered and patients need to be, especially because healthcare is so expensive and there are so many options. So our goal is to really help, you know, we've transformed the business now to really be helping companies to make sure they listen to the patient and they listen to the caregiver when they're developing clinical trials or when they're developing support programs for Mm -hmm. patients Mm -hmm. or designing anything that's going to be for a patient or a caregiver. So it's a wonderful experience. And the work we did this year was prompted out of you know my own personal experience. I wanted to understand what role caregivers do play in medical decision making. Mm-hmm. Because you you know, there's a dynamic there in the relationship, whether it's a spouse, a son or daughter, a partner, a child that one is caregiving for, in how to respect the needs and wants of the patient, but also as a caregiver wanting the best for that patient too. So we found in our research that 91% of caregivers said that they were very involved in medical decision-making, which to us was a huge percentage, and that a large percentage were thrust into the role, and that over the past couple of years, that role has increased. And so our goal is to continue to try to understand more about the caregiver and their role in decision-making medically. You know, right now, the vast majority are women. Mm -hmm. I think our survey said 82%. Mm -hmm. And so there are natural reasons for that, possibly. But, you know, things are changing now more. Millennials are becoming caregivers. And so is that changing the dynamic? We also want to understand perhaps more why when we do surveys, we're not getting participation from some ethnic groups Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So in our Mm -hmm. survey, we only had a 3% Black or African American representation and a 9% Hispanic or Latino representation. So, you know, why is that and what are the barriers there? So we want to continue to to better understand Mm -hmm. and be able to solve some of the problems for caregivers in a way that involves corporations and foundations and individuals and these nonprofit organizations. Mm -hmm. My experience of caregiving in a hospital situation or with medical professionals is that I feel respected as a proactive caregiver, but I often don't see them as allies outside of the office. I feel like caregivers are really underutilized in that sense as resources in healthcare. And I really would love to see organizations and hospitals make greater use of the knowledge of caregivers mm-hmm. because they just, it's almost like you go out the door and you're lucky if you see a social worker before you leave. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I, I have to say, having been through the experience myself, believe that there's a missed opportunity here for educating caregivers. You know, there's a lot of 
work going on in shared decision-making about Mm -hmm. how the dialogue between a patient and a physician should go. But that needs to integrate the caregiver, you know. And even Mm -hmm. at the very beginning, they ask when you're filling out in the physician's office, you know, who's your emergency contact? There should mm-hmm. be a question about who's your caregiver contact, you right, know, and right. how do we, what role do they play in yeah. your care? Uh-huh. And add one more chair in the physician's waiting room so that a caregiver can actually sit there too. Right. You know, it's, it's just that right. there are simple things that can be done, but I think there needs to be more training of medical professionals about the caregiver and the importance of their role. Um, so we're, we're actually, you know, just beginning on this journey mm-hmm. and Mm-hmm. But there are organizations like the National Alliance of Caregiving, sure. headed by this woman named Grace Whiting, mm-hmm. doing terrific you know, work in trying to change things for caregivers, Caregiver Action Network as well. Mm-hmm. In terms of the work that we've been doing, just as an example, we're doing some work with companies developing gene therapies. So we'll bring together patient and caregiver advisors into a room with them and help them understand what the patient challenges are and the caregiver challenges for managing the disease, for managing how do they, if they want to participate in a clinical trial, what are the hurdles to that? Mm-hmm. What are the their psychological barriers as well as logistical or financial? So we'll integrate patients and caregivers into research. The companies that we mm-hmm. work with are also doing simulations where they'll bring a group of patients and caregivers into a a clinical trial simulated site to walk them through, well, these are the blood tests you're going to be taking, or this is how many times you have to go to see your physician, and getting patient feedback on those things. And now, you know, what's evolving as a result of some of these questioning is that companies are thinking about remote clinical trials and is there a different way of structuring trials so that they're not creating such a burden on patients in order to participate. Hmm. Um, So that's just one example. But, you know, healthcare institutions are working with design firms constantly now. I know IDEO is one of them where, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll they'll help figure out what's a patient-friendly design and and how, how to interact with patients from the point in which they sign into the reception area throughout, you know, texting as a follow-up, all those kinds of different customer-friendly techniques that are starting to happen. Mm -hmm. Are there certain challenges in organizations that you've seen over and over again? I know this is still kind of a new area, but just over the course of the work that you're doing, and maybe you could speak to how the landscape has changed since you started in 2009. Yeah, so I think this is a really fascinating time for healthcare. It's both really exciting in terms of what's happening. So you've got this precision medicine evolving and genomic testing that's now allowing cancer patients to get targeted therapies that are going to be effective. And then you've got all these new artificial intelligence underway. And what technology is bringing in healthcare is amazing right Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. But that's coupled with the inability of the system to pay for it and Mm -hmm. to integrate it fully in and all of the kind of finger pointing that's happening between the health insurers and the pharmaceutical companies. And that, I think, is just obviously creating such 
stress and strain on the system that we're seeing regulations happening in different states and, you know, move towards that nationally. So that's a challenge that we don't necessarily have a sustainable healthcare system that we can afford to continue treating people. And as people age, you know, this we have the gray tsunami and we as baby boomers, who's going to take care of us? You know, people are living longer. So it's it's a very both exciting and very challenging time to be in healthcare. Yeah. And it's hard to figure out where it's going too. That's you know, you yeah. you're Well, it's also really fascinating to see individuals taking matters into their own hands and making the choice to opt out of purchasing healthcare through the marketplace. And I've heard about these concierge physicians or sort of Mm -hmm. paying a certain amount of money a month just to go Mm -hmm. to a primary care physician. I see what you're saying. It really is an interesting time because people are frustrated, so they're looking for solutions Mm -hmm. of their own because they can't rely on government and who knows what's going to happen with the Affordable Care Act. I read on your website that in 2017, the FDA requested input from rx for good on a potential Office of Patient Affairs, which uh, I was yes. like, well, they didn't, wow, well, what happened they with didn't that? They did request it specifically of us, but oh, they okay. did an open call for okay. commentary. Okay. And we did respond. We conducted some research with, I think it was about 250 patient organizations in terms of what was important to them mm-hmm. in an office of patient affairs. And they wanted a seat at the table, which says that patients and caregivers want to be involved in decisions that are made about, you know, what drugs are discovered, how mm-hmm. they're right. formulated, mm-hmm. how they're priced. So I think people really want that kind of engagement with companies. They want to be heard. They want the patient advocates is say nothing about me without me. Hmm. And it's so true. Mm -hmm. They just, you know, in one of the pieces of research, someone said, well, we're the ones taking these drugs. Shouldn't we be the ones who are have a say in in (laughs) what they're like and how they are priced? So, Uh Yeah, I mean, I always go back to this idea that as a business, healthcare, it's it's the only business where the consumer has so little control over the pricing, whether or not they can really get the product, what the cost of the procedure will be. They don't know that beforehand. I mean, it's really crazy to me in a way that the business for consumers as consumers is the one thing that, you know, as a consumer, you really just don't know what you're getting yourself into. And you have the shock of a bill after a procedure or an admittance that you couldn't avoid. It's scary. So Yeah, that's very true, especially with critical diseases like cancer, where people are just, they have experiencing such financial, they call it financial toxicity, because huh, it's, you that. know, a side effect of cancer treatment, because they, people just can't afford to go through the hospitalizations, the treatment, yeah. and oh, it awful. does, it creates, and, and it, the other issue is, you know, you were talking about concierge care, mm-hmm. that's, well and good for people who can afford it. But there are a lot of people in our country who just can't. And that's Mm -hmm. a real challenge as well for reaching those people in rural areas or people who are below the poverty line in terms of just being unable to afford care. Mm -hmm. Was any action? I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was, no, I was going to ask if any action was taken by the FDA as a result of the oh, finding. Well, yeah. so, they, so it was at a point when the Trump administration was coming in, so it created a little bit of differentiation in terms of what the goals were mm-hmm. prior administration in this one. But Scott Gottlieb, who heads up the FDA, has 
committed, you know, made a public announcement about being committed to patients and caregivers. And FDA has just issued some guidances and they have more coming on what they call patient-focused drug development. Mm-hmm. And they're basically requiring, or they're not, I guess FDA can't require a mandate, but they can guide any kind of manufacturers who are developing drugs and anyone else who wants to submit. So so nonprofit patient organizations can submit to FDA research demonstrating the patient perspective on patient reported outcomes, they call it. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking to have the patient perspective included in drug applications that are submitted to the FDA. So they, they are making sure that um, the patient and the caregiver are integral. I would say the caregiver mm-hmm. still is a, you know, everybody's throws the caregiver in after the patient and says, and the caregiver. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a need for the caregiver to be an equal part of the healthcare relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the patient, it's the physician, and it is the caregiver. And I think, yes, the patient obviously is the person who is experiencing this first and foremost and is terrified to have a disease. But the caregiver does play a really big role And I think there is a need for more acknowledgement of that. Mm -hmm. I have the feeling that the physicians see the importance. I think the system hasn't quite caught on yet, if that makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I like how you end your Forbes piece with your learnings from both the experience of caregiving and your business. Uh So let's stick with the caregiving side. What are some of your learnings from that, if you like to tackle that? Oh, sure. That that relationships with physicians take time and that the role of the caregiver, and our research showed this too, that I think as you become more knowledgeable as a caregiver and the physician sees you in that role, they become much more of a partner in care mm-hmm. and look to you as, you know, a support network for the patient and the relationship just changes and it becomes a lovely relationship. I mm-hmm. think that mm-hmm. that was my personal experience that I think keeping track of the medication somebody takes is an incredibly daunting thing. I, I had to put these little pill things for my mother and I could not like <laughs> every day measuring out all the right. different pills that had to be taken. I think that in my father's instance, I wish that we were more knowledgeable or able to convince him maybe not to do the surgery he did, but that was his choice. And so I guess my learning is there's only so far you can go. But I also kind of foolishly thought he could go through something Mm -hmm. at 94, and I don't think he should have. So there was a learning about when do you just not seek treatment? Mm -hmm. But that, again, that was his decision, which I guess my learning is you can only go so far in your opinion as a caregiver. It's really their life. And that's, yeah. you know, yeah. it is their decision. Did you talk about the possible drawbacks with him of the surgery? Yes, but he was really... Um, Determined? Yeah, he was determined because mm. I think he honestly, I think he thought it was going to be almost a cure. He didn't understand hmm. all of it or didn't want to and just was, you know, it was, I think it was frustrating for him. He was fearing everything that was going on around him. So. Yeah, yeah, it's so terrifying, especially for men who are so used to being in charge of that generation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are your parents? 
Your parents American born? Yes. Okay. They're first generation American born. Oh, okay. And where? What's your your cultural background? This is Um, getting side off the side. I'm always interested in these things. That's okay. So my father is was Czechoslovakian. Uh So pure. Both his parents were from Czechoslovakia and met Uh over here, Uh coming over. And then my mother's parents were Irish and German. Okay. So a complete mix. Yeah. (laughs) All kinds of cultures. Warring cultures. Wow, yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, but it's nice for you to see her blossoming a little bit, if that's the right word. Oh, I mean, yes, of, absolutely. That's cool. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I wonder, do you have any last thoughts before we go? Well, I do have to say this, that I have tremendous regard for everyone who is or will be a caregiver, and that what people do for love brings them so much love and is something that requires tremendous amount of sacrifice. And it's an ultimate gift that people give. And I just have so much appreciation for people who are doing it long term. And I want to say thank you. And I hope our society really acknowledges caregivers more in the future. We've been speaking with Anne Morovic, caregiver for her mom and president of Rx for Good, which empowers healthcare organizations to deliver on their promise to put patients first. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode on the AgeWise Podcast website, where you'll find more information about Rx for Good. You can hear all about the really cool work that Anne's doing with her company, as well as read her piece for Forbes titled What's Love Got to Do With It? When Caring for a Business and Caregiving Converge. Anne, thank you so much for the work you're doing advocating on behalf of patients and caregivers like you, me, and I'm guessing lots of folks who are listening. So thanks a lot for the work you're doing. And it's been wonderful chatting with you. Oh, thank you so much, Jenna. Really enjoyed chatting with you as well. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, and best of all, know you're not alone. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. Thank you.